Bishop Spong, first of all, let me just say what an honor it is uh, to interview you. Uh, you are a person that I've admired and whose writings I have read carefully. Um, and so to interview you is really a special pleasure. You and Christine are so hospitable in as- asking us to come to your house and host us here. Thank you for doing it. I-, I want to talk about the book, but I really want to frame it in the context of, of your ministry. Um, I wonder when did you begin to realize that you are a clarifier and a dissenter and a reformer for people who have hoped for change in the Christian church but not known whether it would ever come or go far enough? When did you realize that you were crucial to that? I'm not sure I've ever realized how crucial I am. I think it's a matter of of a consciousness emerging in time, and you have simply articulate that consciousness. I grew up in a Christian church, an Episcopal church, as a matter of fact, in Charlotte, North Carolina, that taught me that segregation was the will of God and quoted the Bible to prove it. They taught me that women were inferior to men by nature and quoted the Bible to prove it. They taught me it was okay to hate other religions and especially the Jews and quoted the Bible to prove it. And they taught me that homosexuals were either mentally sick or morally depraved and, of course, quoted the Bible to prove it. And so my life has sort of been an emergence out of the prejudices that my church planted in me. And they came in various stages. I'd like to think that it was a a Damascus Road experience and I got up and said, now I'm in a different place. But the fact is that uh, racism is in the blood of people that grow up in a segregated South. I still consider myself a recovering racist. And the civil rights movement posed the issues for me very bluntly. Uh, And it caused me to look at people very differently. And I can remember the stages. I can remember as a child, I was maybe in the fifth grade, maybe 10 years old. World War II had begun. There's a great rush of patriotism around. And another school in Charlotte invited my school to send some representatives to a, quote, patriotic assembly that they were planning. And for some reason, I don't know why, I was chosen one of three, maybe four, with our teacher. It was a lark for me because I got out of school. Uh, And at that point, it never occurred to me that schools were segregated. It didn't occur to me to think there were no black children in my school. That's just the way things were. Segregation builds very high walls. But I got over to the school, and suddenly I saw more black children than I'd ever seen before in my life. And I saw black teachers. The only black people I'd ever seen before had been domestic servants or people working in the yard. And these people were teachers, and the principal was black, and they were driving cars. I'd never seen a black person drive a, a car. I'd seen a black man drive an old truck. But this was just uh, an eye-opening experience. And then we went into the assembly, and we were honored guests, so we were seated, seated up on the stage, and they... They said, let us now stand and say together the Lord's Prayer. That was quite legal in North Carolina in 1944, or 43, I guess this was. And so we did, and I knew the Lord's Prayer, so I joined right in. And then it suddenly occurred to me that all these people were praying the same prayer to the same God. And we weren't allowed to worship together. I'd never seen a black person in worship with me before. And then they told us to remain standing and say the Pledge of Allegiance. I did that. I was a Cub Scout. I knew how to do that. I was very proud. I put my hand over my heart. And remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Well, I knew that too. It's a pretty tough song to sing when you're 10 years old, but I knew it. And I stood up and got ready to sing, Oh, say, can, I, can you see? And that wasn't the national anthem. 
They played Lift Every Voice and Sing, which I heard later was called the Black National Anthem. And every child in that school knew that by heart and sang it. It was a whole new revelation. And I'd been told that slavery was a really wonderful thing that we white folks had done for those poor Africans. You know, we brought them over here and taught them how to dress and brush their teeth and got them baptized. And we just were wonderful people to have done this. And this song was talking about the lash of the master and bleeding feet as you walk toward uh, both slavery and freedom. There was a whole new image. I didn't know what to do with that except to begin to process it. And so it sort of it sort of began to be the processing. I had one other experience as a child. My father had taught me that I always must say sir or ma'am when I address my elders. And I would say, yes, sir, no, no, sir, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. If I failed to do that, they would say, yes, what? And I would quickly put the ma'am in there for fear of the consequences. But my father had hired two black men to help him build a, a decorative brick wall in our yard. And I was just a little kid maybe five, and I was going to help. And in the course of the day, one of the two black men who had white hair and was clearly elderly said something to me, and I responded, yes, sir, to him as I had been taught. My father grabbed me, took me into the house, and lectured me sternly that you do not say sir to what he he didn't. I'm not going to say what he called him. But uh, again, that's the first time I remember thinking maybe my father's wrong. You know, father parents are sort of God figures to little children. And yet, this didn't add up. I'd been taught to respect my elders. This man was clearly my elder. I'd done what I'd been taught, and I was disciplined for it. And that didn't make any sense to me. Nobody told me there's another factor in there called race that uh, didn't didn't come up, didn't fit in. So, you know, that was, again, discomfort. And that's about all I can remember from my childhood. My life... Uh, my life was in force. All my prejudices were in force with biblical quotations. And the first step I took out of that was when I was about 14. And we had a, a new rector who had come to our church. And he broke all the molds in my mind. This was right after World War II. He was a Navy chaplain in the South Pacific. He uh, he was 32. I really thought you had to be about 80 to be a priest because I'd never <laughs> known one that wasn't 80. Uh, he drove a Ford convertible. That was just very shocking to me. I thought all clergy drove hearses. I'd never seen a clergyman in anything but a hearse. <laughs> and he wore white buck shoes, which might not be stylish. Dave was pretty stylish in 1946. And he played a guitar, and he sort of reminded me of Bing Crosby and going my way, but I hadn't seen Bing Crosby at that point. But this man was... He just was very different uh, in every area he was different, and he was not a biblical fundamentalist. He was what I call an ecclesiastical fundamentalist. He didn't say the Bible says. He says the church teaches. And But I found out the church has been teaching for 2,000 years, and it's awful hard to track, track down exactly what they teach on every subject. So you got a lot more flexibility. When you say the Bible says, somebody says, well, show me where it says that, and you have to go to chapter and verse. So that was the first sort of step into flexibility. Then when I got to the University of North Carolina to begin my undergraduate work, everything about modern education came into collision with my fundamentalistic worldview. And you can't be both. You're either going to be religious in the old sense or you're going to be modern. And you can't keep a foot in both camps. And I found that terribly difficult. And one of the people that was most helpful to me was my professor of zoology, his name was Claiborne Jones, 
and he was an active practicing lay Christian, and he was a thoroughgoing Darwinian evolutionist, and I'd never seen those two things put together before. So I really wrestled with that man and took a number of courses with him. And and I became sort of what I am now. I'm absolutely convinced of the reality of God, the meaning of the holy, the transcendent. I'm not convinced of anybody's definition of that God. And so I see my life as a journey into the mystery of that God. The only path I know how to walk is the Christ path. If I were a Buddhist, I'd walk the Buddhist path, but I'm not a Buddhist. I'm not a Jew. I'm not a Muslim. I don't have any disrespect for these three, but the path I know, the path has been open to me to walk is the Christ path into the mystery of God, so I walk it. I don't believe that God's a Christian, and I think if I walk my path, my Christ path, deeply enough, I'll transcend all the limits of my religion. My hope is that the Jew and the Muslim and the Buddhist and the Hindu will do the same thing as they walk their path into the mystery of God. And that once we transcend the limits of human religion, then maybe we'll be able to share in a way that we can't share now. We, we don't have to sacrifice anything. I can say to my friends in other faiths, from walking the Christ path, this is the gift that I have received, and I want to share it with you. And they can say, well, this is a gift I've received from walking the Jewish path, the Muslim path, etc. And I want to share it with you. And so we can take on the treasures of the other without anybody having to uh, sacrifice their principles. Now, you put that kind of transition into the same life that's wrestling with the fact that I have four daughters who crashed every boundary that people have placed on women's potential and that I became a bishop in a metropolitan New York area where I had to engage the gay community, and I began to see humanity in all sorts of forms and any discrimination against any child of God on the basis of any external thing simply becomes a violation of everything that I believe about God and everything I believe about humanity. And I'm the, I'm the sort of person that uh, I describe myself as having an overdeveloped left brain and an underdeveloped right brain. But once... You get through my brain and convert my mind, there's no way I can't act on that new conviction. Mm -hmm. And so when I became aware, after a lot of study with some doctor friends of mine, that homosexuality is simply an, one aspect on the spectrum of human sexuality, and that it's neither good nor bad, and it's not chosen. It's simply you awaken to it. I didn't. I didn't choose to be heterosexual. I just woke up when girls didn't seem obnoxious to me any longer. I didn't make a decision about it. I just sort of followed my glands, I guess. Yeah. And so you realize that others don't do that either. And so it makes no sense to discriminate against people because their skin is different from yours, or their gender is different from yours, or their sexual orientation, or their left-handed is different from mine. There are lots of dis lots of things in the human family that set us apart from one another. And we fear anything that's different. That's one of the basis of our biology. I think we've been taught to fear anything that's different because it's a threat to survival, and survival drives every living thing from a plant to an, a human being. So the, the process of seeing humanity as human and to see God in the midst of humanity, which is the center of the Jesus story, uh, just drives you to a set of different conclusions. And so for what, for what it's worth, I've walked through these revolutions, and, and I think history will record 
that I've been on the right side of all of them. And the church, by and large, as an institution, has been on the wrong side of every one of them and has had to be dragged screaming and kicking past that boundary. But we do make it. You know, as I look at my church today, in North Carolina, where I grew up, has one Episcopal bishop, and he's an African-American elected by the people. That's a long road from arresting people who come to worship in a white church to electing an African-American to be the top of your church's structure. Right. My church has a woman as the presiding bishop. If if we had a, the comparable office to the Archbishop of Canterbury in America, she is a female, and she's a very competent female. My church now has two openly gay bishops, and we've got a number of gay clergy. I had 35 when I retired, perfectly open, and male and female, and living with their partners. In most cases, some were single, but most of them were living with their partners. And there was never any conflict about this. I've watched these revolutions, and, and I'm really grateful to have had a chance to share in them. You know, Bishop Spong, it, it, you are are making a point that is, is so resonant with me because I grew up in the South as, as well, and uh, what you described was my background. What you you encountered biblical fundamentalism and you encountered what you called ecclesiastical fundamentalism how did you do that and realize that fundamentalism was wrong but retain a, a respect for the bible and a respect for the church that's an interesting trick it's by and large when people are disillusioned by their religious upbringing they just kick over the traces right. Right. I guess there's a part of me that still respects the fundamentalism, not the not the hardcore misunderstanding. But I was a child in a fairly dysfunctional home. My father was an alcoholic and he died when I was twelve. And fundamentalism gave me a sense of security that I didn't have in my family. And so I don't want to disrespect it at this stage in my life. My mother died a fundamentalist. She didn't have a she didn't finish the ninth grade and did not have the intellectual ability to to cope with much beyond that. And so I begin to see fundamentalism more as a personality style and a cover for insecurity than I do anything else. And so the last thing I want to do is to hate the fundamentalist or even to judge the fundamentalist. But I'm not going to be one. Uh, and the the journey is uh, is a pretty profound journey. And I don't want to do anything other than that. Uh, I don't. I don't believe. I believe that every time a human being tries to define God, that they commit idolatry, because they act as if God can fit into the categories of the human mind. And yet, I'm not going to be godless. That is, I don't know how to be godless. I, I call myself a God intoxicated human being, but the form of God is is very non-defined. Uh, I loved a statement that a retired bishop made to me on one occasion, and I find myself repeating it. He said, the older I get, the more deeply I believe, but the less beliefs I have. And I think that's sort of where I am today. Yeah. Uh, I love going to church. I say the creeds every Sunday. I have no trouble with the creeds. I regard them as a fourth century love song that our ancestors sang to God. It doesn't bother me that they reflect a three-tiered universe that no longer exists in anybody's mind except the most illiterate. 
but the creeds, to me, are the way we framed our worship song in the fourth century. So I can sing the fourth century song. I don't literalize it. I don't think it's a straight jacket or girdle into which I've got to force my flabby faith. But I think it's a, it's a guide along the way. This is how we understood reality. Now, I live in the 21st century. I've got to understand reality in a very different way. And can I make my image of God fit into the reality of my century? I, if I didn't, I don't see how I could be a Christian. But it's because I, I fight that battle daily. And How do you speak of God? Well, I try not to speak of God as a being. I think that's where we all get in trouble. I don't see God as an external being, supernatural and power, living somewhere above the sky and periodically invading the earth. What I think I can do without being idolatrous is to talk about not God, but my experience of God. Then I'm talking about something that I can relate to. And I have to face the fact that my experience might be delusional. I've been in mental institutions and I find a lot of delusional talk about God. Mm -hmm. Maybe mine is too, but I don't think so. I think, uh, I believe that I experience God as a source of life. And therefore I have to regard life as holy. And the more deeply and fully I live, the more I think I make God visible. Mm -hmm. I experience God as a source of love, and this is primarily the Jesus story. But if God's a source of love, the only way I can worship God is by loving. And the more deeply and fully I'm able to transcend my limits and love another person, then the more I think God becomes visible. Mm -hmm. And then I borrow a phrase from Paul Tillich, who was my shaping theologian. Dr. Tillich died about 1963, I believe. But Tillich defined God not as a being, but the ground of being. And that's a phrase people have a hard time translating. But if God is the ground of being, then the only way I worship God is to become all that I can be. And then to try to build a world where everybody can become all that they can be, because that's the way you reveal the presence of God. Well, that puts every prejudice to rout, it seems to Mm me. And it's so deeply biblical when you go back and look at at Paul, and when he wrote Galatians, he said, once you get inside the Christ experience, you discover there's no such thing as a Jew or a Gentile or a man or a woman, or bond or free. And I would add to that, gay or straight, Catholic or Protestant, Jew or Muslim, every category you want. There's just a common humanity. Now, how do we enhance that humanity in such a way as to become humane? Uh, I think humanism is a is a religious ideal. I, uh, I remember being named the humanist of the year once in New York by an organization, and my critics wrote and said, "Well, now I've always believed you weren't a Christian. Now I know you're just a humanist." I think those. I think the opposite of being a humanist is to be inhumane. Mm-hmm. I think Christian humanism is a very real possibility, and the fact that at the center of the Christ story. There is the image of God taking on human form would indicate to me there must be something okay about being human. Mm -hmm. And if we can enhance the humanity of people, uh, then I think we're able to transcend all the barriers. Human beings, as far as I know them, are all survival-oriented because I think that's what biology is about. I can take a plant from one end of this house to the other end of this house, and the plant will turn to get the sun from the other direction because survival is written into the heart of life. And I, I can take you into all sorts of places of the world and show you that every living thing is survival-oriented, but it's instinctual behavior. We don't, But human beings are self-conscious, so it becomes self-conscious adopted behavior. And one of the reasons that human beings 
fear anybody that's different is that that's a threat to survival. That's why we're xenophobic. It's not because we're evil or because we've fallen into sin from the Garden of Eden. It's because our biology warns us to be aware of anybody that's different. So prejudices come out of that. Sexism comes out of that. Homophobia comes out of that. Tribalism comes out of that. Religion comes out of that. Religious wars come out of that. The terrible things that we human beings do to one another, and we do it all the time, and even we do it in the name of religion, mm-hmm. but the terrible things we do are all survival-oriented. Now, if we can project Jesus as the power of God to call us beyond the self-centeredness of being driven by our survival into the capacity to love others as they are, then I think you transform humanity and you call us into a whole new sense of what it means to be human. And I think that's what the kingdom of God is all about. Is that the gospel? I think that's exactly what the gospel is. Yeah. Uh, And I think you see that in in every place. One of the one of the things that fascinates me is in Mark, who's the first gospel writer, tells his story. He has he tells the story of the Christ. There's no birth in Mark, and there's no appearance of the risen Christ in Mark. It's truncated in a lot of ways. But he gets to the point of Jesus' death, and he has him dead and limp and hanging on the cross. And Mark puts a Gentile underneath the cross and lets him do the interpreting. That's fascinating. Mm -hmm. He's an unclean Gentile. He hasn't been circumcised. He doesn't keep the Torah. He doesn't uh, obey kosher dietary laws. He's unclean by every category that Mark, as a Jew, would have recognized. And yet he puts this unclean Gentile, and he says of this dead life, when you can give your life away in love for others, that's what God is. And we translate that, truly this man was the son of God, as if he had just passed the Council of Nicaea 101's <laughs> theology. But that's 300 years later. He was saying, we see God when we see a human life that's so full that it isn't driven by its own survival mm-hmm. and can give its life away and even love those who are killing him. That's a really God portrait. Yeah. I think it's a powerful portrait.